Section twenty six of the Country of the Blind and Other Stories by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Yearsley. The Valley of Spiders. Towards midday, the three pursuers came abruptly round a bend in the torrent bed upon the site of a very broad and spacious valley. The difficult and winding trench of pebbles along which they had tracked the fugitives for so long expanded to a broad slope and with a common impulse the three men left the trail and rode to a little eminence set with olive dun trees and there halted the two others as became them a little behind the man with the silver-studded bridle for a space they scanned the great expanse below them with eager eyes it spread remoter and remoter with only a few clusters of sere thorn bushes here and there and the dim suggestions of some now waterless ravine to break its desolation of yellow grass its purple distances melted at last into the bluish slopes of the further hills hills it might be of a greener kind and above them invisibly supported and seeming indeed to hang in the blue were the snow-clad summits of mountains that grew larger and bolder to the north-westward as the sides of the valley drew together and westward the valley opened until a distant darkness under the sky told where the forests began but the three men looked neither east nor west but only steadfastly across the valley the gaunt man with the scarred lip was the first to speak nowhere he said with a sigh of disappointment in his voice but after all they had a full day's start they don't know we're after them said the little man on the white horse she would know said the leader bitterly as if speaking to himself even then they can't go fast they've got no beast but the mule and all to-day the girl's foot has been bleeding the man with the silver bridle flashed a quick intensity of rage on him do you think i haven't seen that he snarled it helps anyhow whispered the little man to himself the gaunt man with the scarred lip stared impassively. "'They can't be over the valley,' he said, "'if we ride hard.' He glanced at the white horse and paused. "'Curse all white horses,' said the man with the silver bridle, and turned to scan the beast his curse included. The little man looked down between the melancholy ears of his steed. "'I did my best,' he said. The two others stared again across the valley for a space. The gaunt man passed the back of his hand across the scarred lip. "'Come up,' said the man who owned the silver bridle, suddenly. The little man started and jerked his rein, and the horse-hoofs of the three made a multitudinous faint pattering upon the withered grass as they turned back towards the trail. They rode cautiously down the long slope before them, and so came through a waste of prickly twisted bushes and strange dry shapes of thorny branches that grew amongst the rocks into the levels below and there the trail grew faint for the soil was scanty and the only herbage was this scorched dead straw that lay upon the ground still by hard scanning by leaning beside the horses necks and pausing ever and again even these white men could contrive to follow after their prey. There were trodden places, bent and broken blades of the coarse grass, and ever and again the sufficient intimation of a footmark, and once the leader saw a brown smear of blood where the half-caste girl may have trod, and at that, under his breath, he cursed her for a fool. 
The gaunt man checked his leader's tracking, and the little man on the white horse rode behind, a man lost in a dream. They rode, one after another. The man with the silver bridle led the way, and they spoke never a word. After a time it came to the little man on the white horse that the world was very still. He started out of his dream. Besides the little noises of their horses and equipment, the whole great valley kept the brooding quiet of a painted scene. Before him went his master and his fellow, each intently leaning forward to the left, each impassively moving with the paces of his horse. Their shadows went before them, still, noiseless, tapering attendants, and nearer a crouched cool shape was his own. He looked about him. What was it had gone? Then he remembered the reverberation from the banks of the gorge, and the perpetual accompaniments of shifting, jostling pebbles. And moreover, there was no breeze. That was it. What a vast still place it was. A monotonous afternoon slumber, and the sky, open and blank, except for a sombre veil of haze that had gathered in the upper valley. He straightened his back, fretted with his bridle, puckered his lips to whistle and simply sighed. He turned in his saddle for a time, and stared at the throat of the mountain gorge out of which they had come. Blank, blank slopes on either side, with never a sign of a decent beast or tree, much less a man. What a land it was! What a wilderness! He dropped again into his former pose. It filled him with a momentary pleasure to see a wry stick of purple-black flash out in the form of a snake and vanish amidst the brown. After all, the infernal valley was alive. And then, to rejoice him still more, came a little breath across his face, a whisper that came and went, the faintest inclination of a stiff, black-antlered bush upon a little crest, the first intimations of a possible breeze. Idly he wetted his finger and held it up. He pulled up sharply to avoid a collision with the gaunt man, who had stopped at fault upon the trail. Just at that guilty moment he caught his master's eye looking towards him. For a time he forced an interest in the tracking. Then, as they rode on again, he studied his master's shadow and hat and shoulder, appearing and disappearing behind the gaunt man's nearer contours. They had ridden four days out of the very limits of the world into this desolate place, short of water, with nothing but a strip of dried meat under their saddles, over rocks and mountains where surely none but these fugitives had ever been before. For that! And all this was for a girl, a mere willful child, and the man had whole cityfuls of people to do his basest bidding. Girls, women, why in the name of passionate folly this one in particular? asked the little man, and scowled at the world and licked his parched lips with a blackened tongue. It was the way of the master, and that was all he knew, just because she sought to evade him. His eye caught a whole row of high-plumed canes, bending in unison, and then the tails of silk that hung before his neck flapped and fell. The breeze was growing stronger. Somehow it took the stiff stillness out of things, and that was well. "'Hello,' said the gaunt man. All three stopped abruptly. "'What?' asked the master. "'What?' 
over there said the gaunt man pointing up the valley what something coming towards us and as he spoke a yellow animal crested a rise and came bearing down upon them it was a big wild dog coming before the wind tongue out at a steady pace and running with such an intensity of purpose that he did not seem to see the horseman he approached he ran with his nose up following it was plain neither scent nor quarry as he drew nearer the little man felt for his sword he's mad said the gaunt rider shout said the little man and shouted the dog came on then when the little man's blade was already out it swerved aside and went panting by them and passed the eyes of the little man followed its flight there was no foam he said for a space the man with the silver-studded bridle stared up the valley oh come on he cried at last what does it matter and jerked his horse into movement again the little man left the insoluble mystery of a dog that fled from nothing but the wind and lapsed into profound musings on human character come on he whispered to himself why should it be given to one man to say come on with that stupendous violence of effect always all his life the man with the silver bridle has been saying that if i said it thought the little man but people marvelled when the master was disobeyed even in the wildest things this half-caste girl seemed to him seemed to everyone mad blasphemous almost the little man by way of comparison reflected on the gaunt rider with the scarred lip as stalwart as his master as brave and indeed perhaps braver and yet for him there was obedience nothing but to give obedience duly and stoutly certain sensations of the hands and knees called the little man back to more immediate things he became aware of something he rode up beside his gaunt fellow do you notice the horses he said in an undertone the gaunt face looked interrogation they don't like this wind said the little man and dropped behind as the man with the silver bridle turned upon him it's all right said the gaunt-faced man they rode on again for a space in silence the foremost two rode downcast upon the trail the hindmost man watched the haze that crept down the vastness of the valley nearer and nearer and noted how the wind grew in strength moment by moment far away on the left he saw a line of dark bulks wild hog perhaps galloping down the valley but of that he said nothing nor did he remark again upon the uneasiness of the horses and then he saw first one and then a second great white ball a great shining white ball like a gigantic head of thistledown that drove before the wind athwart the path these balls soared high in the air and dropped and rose again and caught for a moment and hurried on and passed but at the sight of them the restlessness of the horses increased then presently he saw that more of these drifting globes and then soon very many more were hurrying towards him down the valley they became aware of a squealing athwart the path a huge boar rushed turning his head but for one instant to glance at them and then hurling on down the valley again and at that all three stopped and sat in their saddles staring into the thickening haze that was coming upon them if it were not for this thistle down began the leader but now a big globe came drifting past within a score of yards of them it was really not an even sphere at all but a vast soft 
ragged, filmy thing, a sheet gathered by the corners, an aerial jellyfish, as it were, but rolling over and over as it advanced, and trailing long cobwebby threads and streamers that floated in its wake. "'It isn't thistledown,' said the little man. "'I don't like the stuff,' said the gaunt man, and they looked at one another. "'Curse it!' cried the leader. "'The air's full of it up there. If it keeps on at this pace long, it will stop us altogether.' an instinctive feeling such as lines out a herd of deer at the approach of some ambiguous thing prompted them to turn their horses to the wind ride forward for a few paces and stare at that advancing multitude of floating masses they came on before the wind with a sort of smooth swiftness rising and falling noiselessly sinking to earth rebounding high soaring all with a perfect unanimity with a still, deliberate assurance. Right and left of the horsemen, the pioneers of this strange army passed, at one that rolled along the ground, breaking shapelessly and trailing out reluctantly into long, grappling ribbons and bands. All three horses began to shy and dance. The master was seized with a sudden, unreasonable impatience. He cursed the drifting globes roundly. "'Get on!' he cried. "'Get on!' what do these things matter how can they matter back to the trail he fell swearing at his horse and sawed the bit across its mouth he shouted aloud with rage i will follow that trail i tell you he cried where is the trail he gripped the bridle of his prancing horse and searched amidst the grass a long and clinging thread fell across his face a grey streamer dropped about his bridle arm some big active thing with many legs ran down the back of his head he looked up to discover one of those grey masses anchored, as it were, above him by these things, and flapping out ends as a sail flaps when a boat comes about, but noiselessly. He had an impression of many eyes, of a dense crew of squat bodies, of long, many-jointed limbs hauling at their mooring ropes to bring the thing down upon him. For a space he stared up, reining in his prancing horse with the instinct born of years of horsemanship. Then the flat of a sword smote his back, and a blade flashed overhead and cut the drifting balloon of spiderweb free, and the whole mass lifted softly and drove clear and away. "'Spiders!' cried the voice of the gaunt man. "'The things are full of big spiders. Look, my lord!' The man with the silver bridle still followed the mass that drove away. "'Look, my lord!' The master found himself staring down at a red, smashed thing on the ground that in spite of partial obliteration could still wriggle unavailing legs then when the gaunt man pointed to another mass that bore down upon them he drew his sword hastily up the valley now it was like a fog-bank torn to rags he tried to grasp the situation ride for it the little man was shouting ride for it down the valley what happened then was like the confusion of a battle the man with the silver bridle saw the little man go past him slashing furiously at imaginary cobwebs saw him cannon into the horse of the gaunt man and hurl it and its rider to earth his own horse went a dozen paces before he could rein it in then he looked up to avoid imaginary dangers and then back again to see a horse rolling on the ground the gaunt man standing and slashing over it at a rent and fluttering mass of grey that streamed and wrapped about them both and thick and fast as thistledown on waste land on a windy day in july 
the cobweb masses were coming on. The little man had dismounted, but he dared not release his horse. He was endeavouring to lug the struggling brute back with the strength of one arm, while with the other he slashed aimlessly. The tentacles of a second grey mass had entangled themselves with the struggle, and this second grey mass came to its moorings and slowly sank. The master set his teeth, gripped his bridle, lowered his head, and spurred his horse forward. The horse on the ground rolled over. There was blood and moving shapes upon the flanks, and the gaunt man, suddenly leaving it, ran forward towards his master, perhaps ten paces. His legs were swathed and encumbered with grey. He made ineffectual movements with his sword. Grey streamers waved from him. There was a thin veil of grey across his face. With his left hand he beat at something on his body, and suddenly he stumbled and fell. He struggled to rise, and fell again, and suddenly, horribly, began to howl. Oh! 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 The master could see the great spiders upon him, and others upon the ground. As he strove to force his horse nearer to this gesticulating, screaming grey object that struggled up and down, there came a clatter of hoofs, and the little man, in the act of mounting, swordless, balanced on his belly, athwart the white horse, and, clutching its mane, whirled past, and again a clinging thread of grey gossamer swept across the master's face. All about him and over him it seemed this drifting, noiseless cobweb circled and drew nearer him. To the day of his death he never knew just how the event of that moment happened. Did he, indeed, turn his horse, or did it really of its own accord stampede after its fellow? Suffice it that in another second he was galloping full tilt down the valley, with his sword whirling furiously overhead, and all about him on the quickening breeze the spider's airships, their air-bundles and air-sheets, seemed to him to hurry in a conscious pursuit. Clatter, clatter, thud, thud! The man with the silver bridle rode, heedless of his direction, with his fearful face looking up, now right, now left, and his sword-arm ready to slash, and a few hundred yards ahead of him, with a tail of torn cobweb trailing behind him, rode the little man on the white horse, still but imperfectly in the saddle. The reeds bent before them, the wind blew fresh and strong. Over his shoulder the master could see the webs hurrying to overtake. He was so intent to escape the spider's webs that only as his horse gathered together for a leap did he realise the ravine ahead, and then he realised it only to misunderstand and interfere. He was leaning forward on his horse's neck, and sat up and back all too late. But if in his excitement he had failed to leap, at any rate he had not forgotten how to fall. He was horseman again in mid-air. He came off clear with a mere bruise upon his shoulder, and his horse rolled, kicking spasmodic legs, and lay still. But the master's sword drove its point into the hard soil, and snapped clean across, as though chance refused him any longer as her knight, and the splintered end missed his face by an inch or so. He was on his feet in a moment, breathlessly scanning the on-rushing spider-webs. For a moment he was minded to run, and then thought of the ravine, and turned back. He ran aside once, to dodge one drifting terror, and then he was swiftly clambering down the precipitous sides, and out of the touch of the gale. 
there under the lee of the dry torrent's steeper banks he might crouch and watch these strange grey masses pass and pass in safety till the wind fell and it became possible to escape and there for a long time he crouched watching the strange grey ragged masses trail their streamers across his narrowed sky once a stray spider fell into the ravine close beside him a full foot it measured from leg to leg and its body was half a man's hand and after he had watched its monstrous alacrity of search and escape for a little while and tempted it to bite his broken sword he lifted up his iron-heeled boot and smashed it into a pulp he swore as he did so and for a time sought up and down for another then presently when he was surer these spider swarms could not drop into the ravine he found a place where he could sit down and sat and fell into deep thought and began after his manner to gnaw his knuckles and bite his nails and from this he was moved by the coming of the man with the white horse he heard him long before he saw him as a clattering of hoofs stumbling footsteps and a reassuring voice then the little man appeared a rueful figure still with a tail of white cobweb trailing behind him they approached each other without speaking without a salutation the little man was fatigued and shamed to the pitch of hopeless bitterness and came to a stop at last face to face with his seated master the latter winced a little under his dependent's eye well he said at last with no pretence of authority you left him my horse bolted i know so did mine he laughed at his master mirthlessly i say my horse bolted said the man who once had a silver-studded bridle cowards both said the little man the other gnawed his knuckle through some meditative moments with his eye on his inferior don't call me a coward he said at length you are a coward like myself a coward possibly there is a limit beyond which every man must fear that i have learnt at last but not like yourself that is where the difference comes in i never could have dreamt you would have left him he saved your life two minutes before why are you our lord the master gnawed his knuckles again and his countenance was dark no man calls me a coward he said no a broken sword is better than none one spavined white horse cannot be expected to carry two men a four days journey i hate white horses but this time it cannot be helped you begin to understand me i perceive that you are minded on the strength of what you've seen and fancy to taint my reputation it is men of your sort who unmake kings beside which i never liked you my lord said the little man no said the master no he stood up sharply as the little man moved for a minute perhaps they faced one another overhead the spider's balls went driving there was a quick movement among the pebbles a running of feet a cry of despair and a gasp and a blow towards nightfall the wind fell the sun set in a calm serenity and the man who had once possessed the silver bridle came at last very cautiously and by an easy slope out of the ravine again but now he led the white horse that had once belonged to the little man he would have gone back to his horse to get his silver-mounted bridle again 
but he feared night and a quickening breeze might still find him in the valley and besides he disliked greatly to think he might discover his horse all swathed in cobwebs and perhaps unpleasantly eaten and as he thought of those cobwebs and of all the dangers he had been through and the manner in which he had been preserved that day his hand sought a little reliquary that hung about his neck and he clasped it for a moment with heartfelt gratitude as he did so his eyes went across the valley i was hot with passion he said and now she has met her reward they also no doubt and behold far away out of the wooded slopes across the valley but in the clearness of the sunset distinct and unmistakable he saw a little spire of smoke at that his expression of serene resignation changed to an amazed anger smoke he turned the head of the white horse about and hesitated and as he did so a little rustle of air went through the grass about him far away upon some reeds swayed a tattered sheet of grey he looked at the cobwebs he looked at the smoke perhaps after all it is not them he said at last but he knew better after he had stared at the smoke for some time he mounted the white horse as he rode he picked his way amidst stranded masses of web for some reason there were many dead spiders on the ground and those that lived feasted guiltily on their fellows at the sound of his horse's hoofs they fled their time had passed from the ground without either a wind to carry them or a winding sheet ready these things for all their poison could do him little evil he flicked with his belt at those he fancied came too near once where a number ran together over a bare place he was minded to dismount and trample them with his boots but this impulse he overcame ever and again he turned in his saddle and looked back at the smoke spiders he muttered over and over again spiders well well the next time i must spin a web end of section 26section twenty seven of the country of the blind and other stories by h g wells this librivox recording is in the public domain read by peter yearsley the new accelerator certainly if ever a man found a guinea when he was looking for a pin it is my good friend professor gibbon i have heard before of investigators overshooting the mark but never quite to the extent that he has done he has really this time at any rate without any touch of exaggeration in the phrase found something to revolutionize human life and that when he was simply seeking an all-round nervous stimulant to bring languid people up to the stresses of these pushful days i have tasted the stuff now several times and i cannot do better than describe the effect the thing had on me that there are astonishing experiences in store for all in search of new sensations will become apparent enough professor gibbon as many people know is my neighbour in folkestone unless my memory plays me a trick his portrait at various ages has already appeared in the strand magazine i think late in eighteen ninety nine but i am unable to look it up because i have lent that volume to someone who has never sent it back 
the reader may perhaps recall the high forehead and the singularly long black eyebrows that give such a mephistophelian touch to his face he occupies one of those pleasant little detached houses in the mixed style that makes the western end of the upper sandgate road so interesting his is the one with the flemish gables and the moorish portico and it is in the little room with the mullioned bay window that he works when he is down here and in which of an evening we have so often smoked and talked together he is a mighty jester but besides he likes to talk to me about his work he is one of those men who find a help and stimulus in talking and so i have been able to follow the conception of the new accelerator right up from a very early stage of course the greater portion of his experimental work is not done in folkestone but in gower street in the fine new laboratory next to the hospital that he has been the first to use as every one knows or at least as all intelligent people know the special department in which gibbon has gained so great and deserved a reputation among physiologists is the action of drugs upon the nervous system upon soporifics sedatives and anaesthetics he is i am told unequalled he is also a chemist of considerable eminence and i suppose in the subtle and complex jungle of riddles that centres about the ganglion cell and the axis fibre there are little cleared places of his making little glades of illumination that until he sees fit to publish his results are still inaccessible to every other living man and in the last few years he has been particularly assiduous upon this question of nervous stimulants and already before the discovery of the new accelerator very successful with them medical science has to thank him for at least three distinct and absolutely safe invigorators of unrivalled value to practising men in cases of exhaustion the preparation known as gibbon's bee syrup has i suppose saved more lives already than any lifeboat round the coast but none of these little things begin to satisfy me yet he told me nearly a year ago either they increase the central energy without affecting the nerves or they simply increase the available energy by lowering the nervous conductivity and all of them are unequal and local in their operation one wakes up the heart and viscera and leaves the brain stupefied one gets at the brain champagne fashion and does nothing good for the solar plexus and what i want and what if it's an earthly possibility i mean to have is a stimulant that stimulates all round that wakes you up for a time from the crown of your head to the tip of your great toe and makes you go two or even three to everyone else's one eh that's the thing i'm after it would tire a man i said not a doubt of it and you'd eat double or treble and all that but just think what the thing would mean imagine yourself with a little vial like this he held up a little bottle of green glass and marked his points with it and in this precious vial is the power to think twice as fast move twice as quickly do twice as much work in a given time as you could otherwise do but is such a thing possible i believe so if it isn't i've wasted my time for a year 
These various preparations of the hypophosphites, for example, seem to show that something of the sort, even if it was only one and a half times as fast it would do. It would do, I said. If you were a statesman in a corner, for example, time rushing up against you, something urgent to be done, eh? He could dose his private secretary, I said, and gain double time. And think if you, for example, wanted to finish a book. Usually, I said, I wish I'd never begun em. Or a doctor driven to death wants to sit down and think out a case, or a barrister, or a man cramming for an examination. Worth a guinea a drop, said I, and more to men like that. And in a duel, again, said Gibbon, where it all depends on your quickness in pulling the trigger. Or in fencing, I echoed. You see, said Gibbon, if I get it as an all-round thing, it will really do you no harm at all, except, perhaps, to an infinitesimal degree it brings you nearer old age. You will just have lived twice to other people's once. I suppose, I meditated, in a duel it would be fair. That's a question for the seconds, said Gibbon. I harked back further. And you really think such a thing is possible? I said. As possible, said Gibbon and glanced at something that went throbbing by the window, as a motor-bus. As a matter of fact, he paused and smiled at me deeply, and tapped slowly on the edge of his desk with the green vial. I think I know the stuff. Already I've got something coming. The nervous smile upon his face betrayed the gravity of his revelation. He rarely talked of his actual experimental work, unless things were very near the end. And it may be, it may be, I shouldn't be surprised, it may even do the thing at a greater rate than twice. It will be rather a big thing, I hazarded. It will be, I think, rather a big thing. But I don't think he quite knew what a big thing it was to be, for all that. I remember we had several talks about the stuff after that, the new accelerator, he called it and his tone about it grew more confident on each occasion. Sometimes he talked nervously of unexpected physiological results its use might have, and then he would get a little unhappy. At others he was frankly mercenary, and we debated long and anxiously how the preparation might be turned to commercial account. "'It's a good thing,' said Gibbon, "'a tremendous thing. I know I'm giving the world something, and I think it only reasonable we should expect the world to pay.' The dignity of science is all very well, but I think somehow I must have the monopoly of the stuff for, say, ten years. I don't see why all the fun in life should go to the dealers in ham. My own interest in the coming drug certainly did not wane in the time. I have always had a queer little twist towards metaphysics in my mind. I have always been given to paradoxes about space and time, and it seemed to me that Gibbon was really preparing no less than the absolute acceleration of life. Suppose a man repeatedly dosed with such a preparation, he would live an active and record life indeed, but he would be an adult at eleven, middle-aged at twenty-five, and by thirty well on the road to senile decay. It seemed to me that, so far, Gibbon was only going to do for anyone who took his drug exactly what nature has done for the Jews and Orientals, who are men in their teens and aged by fifty, 
and quicker in thought and act than we are all the time the marvel of drugs has always been great to my mind you can madden a man calm a man make him incredibly strong and alert or a helpless log quicken this passion and allay that all by means of drugs and here was a new miracle to be added to this strange armoury of vials the doctors use but gibbon was far too eager upon his technical points to enter very keenly into my aspect of the question it was the seventh or eighth of august when he told me the distillation that would decide his failure or success for a time was going forward as we talked and it was on the tenth that he told me the thing was done and the new accelerator a tangible reality in the world i met him as i was going up the sandgate hill towards folkestone i think i was going to get my hair cut and he came hurrying down to meet me i suppose he was coming to my house to tell me at once of his success i remember that his eyes were unusually bright and his face flushed and i noted even then the swift alacrity of his step it's done he cried and gripped my hand speaking very fast it's more than done come up to my house and see really really he shouted incredibly come up and see and it does twice it does more much more it scares me come up and see the stuff taste it try it it's the most amazing stuff on earth he gripped my arm and walking at such a pace that he forced me into a trot went shouting with me up the hill a whole sharabang full of people turned and stared at us in unison after the manner of people in sharabangs it was one of those hot clear days that folkestone sees so much of every colour incredibly bright and every outline hard there was a breeze of course but not so much breeze as sufficed under these conditions to keep me cool and dry i panted for mercy i'm not walking fast am i cried gibbon and slackened his pace to a quick march you've been taking some of this stuff i puffed no he said at the utmost a drop of water that stood in a beaker from which i had washed out the last traces of the stuff i took some last night you know but that is ancient history now and it goes twice i said nearing his doorway in a grateful perspiration it goes a thousand times many thousand times cried gibbon with a dramatic gesture flinging open his early english carved oak gate phew said i and followed him to the door i don't know how many times it goes he said with his latch-key in his hand and you it throws all sorts of light on nervous physiology it kicks the theory of a vision into a perfectly new shape heaven knows how many thousand times we'll try all that after the thing is to try the stuff now try the stuff i said as we went along the passage rather said gibbon turning on me in his study there it is in that little green vial there unless you happen to be afraid i am a careful man by nature and only theoretically adventurous i was afraid but on the other hand there is pride well i haggled you say you've tried it i've tried it he said and i don't look hurt by it do i i don't even look livery and i feel i sat down give me the potion i said if the worst comes to the worst it will save me having my hair cut and that i think is one of the most hateful duties of a civilized man how do you take the mixture with water said gibbon whacking down a carafe 
he stood up in front of his desk and regarded me in his easy chair his manner was suddenly affected by a touch of the harley street specialist it's rum stuff you know he said i made a gesture with my hand i must warn you in the first place as soon as you've got it down to shut your eyes and open them very cautiously in a minute or so's time one still sees the sense of vision is a question of length of vibration and not of multitude of impacts but there's a kind of shock to the retina a nasty giddy confusion just at the time if the eyes are open keep em shut shut i said good and the next thing is keep still don't begin to whack about you may fetch something a nasty rap if you do remember you will be going several thousand times faster than you ever did before heart lungs muscles brain everything and you will hit hard without knowing it you won't know it you know you'll feel just as you do now only everything in the world will seem to be going ever so many thousand times slower than it ever went before that's what makes it so deuced queer law i said and you mean you'll see said he and took up a little measure he glanced at the material on his desk glasses he said water all here mustn't take too much for the first attempt the little vial glucked out its precious contents don't forget what i told you he said turning the contents of the measure into a glass in the manner of an italian waiter measuring whisky sit with the eyes tightly shut and in absolute stillness for two minutes he said then you will hear me speak he added an inch or so of water to the little dose in each glass by the by he said don't put your glass down keep it in your hand and rest your hand on your knee yes so and now he raised his glass the new accelerator i said the new accelerator he answered and we touched glasses and drank and instantly i closed my eyes you know that blank non-existence into which one drops when one has taken gas for an indefinite interval it was like that then i heard gibbon telling me to wake up and i stirred and opened my eyes there he stood as he had been standing glass still in hand it was empty that was all the difference well said i nothing out of the way nothing a slight feeling of exhilaration perhaps nothing more sounds things are still i said by jove yes they are still except the sort of faint pat patter like rain falling on different things what is it analyzed sounds i think he said but i am not sure he glanced at the window have you ever seen a curtain before a window fixed in that way before i followed his eyes and there was the end of the curtain frozen as it were corner high in the act of flapping briskly in the breeze no said i that's odd and here he said and opened the hand that held the glass naturally i winced expecting the glass to smash but so far from smashing it did not even seem to stir it hung in mid-air motionless roughly speaking said gibbon an object in these latitudes falls sixteen feet in the first second this glass is falling sixteen feet in a second now only you see it hasn't been falling yet for the hundredth part of a second that gives you some idea of the pace of my accelerator and he waved his hand round and round over and under the slowly sinking glass 
Finally he took it by the bottom, pulled it down, and placed it very carefully on the table. "'Eh?' he said to me, and laughed. "'That seems all right,' I said, and began very gingerly to raise myself from my chair. I felt perfectly well, very light and comfortable, and quite confident in my mind. I was going fast all over. My heart, for example, was beating a thousand times a second, but that caused me no discomfort at all. I looked out of the window, an immovable cyclist, head down and with a frozen puff of dust behind his driving wheel, scorched to overtake a galloping charabang that did not stir. I gaped in amazement at this incredible spectacle. Gibbon, I cried, how long will this confounded stuff last? heaven knows he answered last time i took it i went to bed and slept it off i tell you i was frightened it must have lasted some minutes i think it seemed like hours but after a bit it slows down rather suddenly i believe i was proud to observe that i did not feel frightened i suppose because there were two of us why shouldn't we go out i asked why not they'll see us not they goodness no why we shall be going a thousand times faster than the quickest conjuring trick that was ever done come along which way shall we go window or door and out by the window we went assuredly of all the strange experiences that i have ever had or imagined or read of other people having or imagining that little raid i made with kiburn on the folkestone lees under the influence of the new accelerator, was the strangest and maddest of all. We went out by his gate into the road, and there we made a minute examination of the statuesque passing traffic. The tops of the wheels and some of the legs of the horses of this charabang, the end of the whiplash and the lower jaw of the conductor, who was just beginning to yawn, were perceptibly in motion, but all the rest of the lumbering conveyance seemed still and quite noiseless except for a faint rattling that came from one man's throat and as parts of this frozen edifice there were a driver you know and a conductor and eleven people the effect as we walked about the thing began by being madly queer and ended by being disagreeable there they were people like ourselves and yet not like ourselves frozen in careless attitudes caught in mid-gesture a girl and a man smiled at one another, a leering smile that threatened to last for evermore. A woman in a floppy capoline rested her arm on the rail and stared at Gibbon's house with the unwinking stare of eternity. A man stroked his moustache like a figure of wax, and another stretched a tiresome, stiff hand with extended fingers towards his loosened hat we stared at them we laughed at them we made faces at them and then a sort of disgust of them came upon us and we turned away and walked round in front of the cyclist towards the lees goodness cried gibberne suddenly look there he pointed and there at the tip of his finger and sliding down the air with wings flapping slowly and at the speed of an exceptionally languid snail was a bee and so we came out upon the lees there the thing seemed madder than ever the band was playing in the upper stand though all the sound it made for us was a low-pitched wheezy rattle a sort of prolonged last sigh that 
passed at times into a sound like the slow muffled ticking of some monstrous clock frozen people stood erect strange silent self-conscious-looking dummies hung unstably in mid-stride promenading upon the grass i passed close to a little poodle dog suspended in the act of leaping and watched the slow movement of his legs as he sank to earth lord look here cried gibbon and we halted for a moment before a magnificent person in white faint striped flannels white shoes and a panama hat who turned back to wink at two gaily dressed ladies he had passed a wink studied with such leisurely deliberation as we could afford is an unattractive thing it loses any quality of alert gaiety and one remarks that the winking eye does not completely close that under its drooping lid appears the lower edge of an eyeball and a little line of white heaven give me memory said i and i will never wink again or smile said gibberne with his eye on the lady's answering teeth it's infernally hot somehow said i let's go slower oh come along said gibberne we picked our way among the bath chairs in the path many of the people sitting in the chairs seemed almost natural in their passive poses but the contorted scarlet of the bandsmen was not a restful thing to see a purple-faced little gentleman was frozen in the midst of a violent struggle to reform his newspaper against the wind there were many evidences that all these people in their sluggish way were exposed to a considerable breeze a breeze that had no existence so far as our sensations went we came out and walked a little way from the crowd and turned and regarded it to see all that multitude changed to a picture smitten rigid as it were into the semblance of realistic wax was impossibly wonderful it was absurd of course but it filled me with an irrational an exultant sense of superior advantage consider the wonder of it all that i had said and thought and done since the stuff had begun to work in my veins had happened so far as those people so far as the world in general went in the twinkling of an eye the new accelerator i began but gibberne interrupted me there's that infernal old woman he said what old woman lives next door to me said gibberne has a lapdog that yaps god the temptation is strong there is something very boyish and impulsive about gibberne at times before i could expostulate with him he had dashed forward snatched the unfortunate animal out of visible existence and was running violently with it towards the cliff of the lees it was most extraordinary the little brute you know didn't bark or wriggle or make the slightest sign of vitality it kept quite stiffly in an attitude of somnolent repose and gibberne held it by the neck it was like running about with a dog of wood gibbon i cried put it down then i said something else if you run like that gibbon i cried you'll set your clothes on fire your linen trousers are going brown as it is he clapped his hand on his thigh and stood hesitating on the verge gibbon i cried coming up put it down this heat is too much it's our running so two or three miles a second friction of the air what he said glancing at the dog 
friction of the air i shouted friction of the air going too fast like meteorites and things too hot and gibbon gibbon i'm all over pricking and a sort of perspiration you can see people stirring slightly i believe the stuff's working off put that dog down eh he said it's working off i repeated we're too hot and the stuff's working off i'm wet through he stared at me then at the band the wheezy rattle of whose performance was certainly going faster then with a tremendous sweep of the arm he hurled the dog away from him and it went spinning upward still inanimate and hung at last over the grouped parasols of a knot of chattering people gibbon was gripping my elbow by jove he cried i believe it is a sort of hot pricking and yes that man's moving his pocket handkerchief perceptibly we must get out of this sharp but we could not get out of it sharply enough luckily perhaps for we might have run and if we had run we should i believe have burst into flames almost certainly we should have burst into flames you know we had neither of us thought of that but before we could even begin to run the action of the drug had ceased it was the business of a minute fraction of a second the effect of the new accelerator passed like the drawing of a curtain vanished in the movement of a hand i heard gibbon's voice in infinite alarm sit down he said and flop down upon the turf at the edge of the lees i sat scorching as i sat there is a patch of burnt grass there still where i sat down the whole stagnation seemed to wake up as i did so the disarticulated vibration of the band rushed together into a blast of music the promenaders put their feet down and walked their ways the papers and flags began flapping smiles passed into words the winker finished his wink and went on his way complacently and all the seated people moved and spoke the whole world had come alive again was going as fast as we were or rather we were going no faster than the rest of the world it was like slowing down as one comes into a railway station everything seemed to spin round for a second or two i had the most transient feeling of nausea and that was all and the little dog which had seemed to hang for a moment when the force of gibbon's arm was expended fell with a swift acceleration clean through a lady's parasol that was the saving of us unless it was for one corpulent old gentleman in a bath-chair who certainly did start at the sight of us and afterwards regarded us at intervals with a darkly suspicious eye and finally i believe said something to his nurse about us i doubt if a solitary person remarked our sudden appearance among them plop we must have appeared abruptly we ceased to smoulder almost at once though the turf beneath me was uncomfortably hot the attention of everyone including even the amusements association band which on this occasion for the only time in its history got out of tune was arrested by the amazing fact and the still more amazing yapping and uproar caused by the fact that a respectable overfed lapdog sleeping quietly to the east of the bandstand should suddenly fall through the parasol of a lady on the west in a slightly singed condition due to the extreme velocity of its movements through the air in these absurd days too when we are all trying to be as psychic and silly and superstitious as possible 
people got up and trod on other people chairs were overturned the lees policeman ran how the matter settled itself i do not know we were much too anxious to disentangle ourselves from the affair and get out of range of the eye of the old gentleman in the bath-chair to make minute inquiries as soon as we were sufficiently cool and sufficiently recovered from our giddiness and nausea and confusion of mind to do so we stood up and skirting the crowd directed our steps back along the road below the metropole towards gibbon's house but amidst the din i heard very distinctly the gentleman who had been sitting beside the lady of the ruptured sunshade using quite unjustifiable threats and language to one of those chair attendants who have inspector written on their caps if you didn't throw the dog he said who did the sudden return of movement and familiar noises and our natural anxiety about ourselves our clothes were still dreadfully hot and the fronts of the thighs of gibbon's white trousers were scorched a drabbish brown prevented the minute observations i should have liked to make on all these things indeed i really made no observations of any scientific value on that return the bee of course had gone i looked for that cyclist but he was already out of sight as we came into the utter sandgate road or hidden from us by traffic the charabang however with its people now all alive and stirring was clattering along at a spanking pace almost abreast of the nearer church we noted however that the window-sill on which we had stepped in getting out of the house was slightly singed and that the impressions of our feet on the gravel of the path were unusually deep so it was i had my first experience of the new accelerator practically we had been running about and saying and doing all sorts of things in the space of a second or so of time we had lived half an hour while the band had played perhaps two bars but the effect it had upon us was that the whole world had stopped for our convenient inspection considering all things and particularly considering our rashness in venturing out of the house the experience might certainly have been much more disagreeable than it was it showed no doubt that gibbon has still much to learn before his preparation is a manageable convenience but its practicability it certainly demonstrated beyond all cavil since that adventure he has been steadily bringing its use under control and i have several times and without the slightest bad result taken measured doses under his direction though i must confess i have not yet ventured abroad again while under its influence i may mention for example that this story has been written at one sitting and without interruption except for the nibbling of some chocolate by its means i began at six twenty five and my watch is now very nearly at the minute past the half hour the convenience of securing a long uninterrupted spell of work in the midst of a day full of engagements cannot be exaggerated gibbon is now working at the quantitative handling of his preparation with especial reference to its distinctive effects upon different types of constitution he then hopes to find a retarder with which to dilute its present rather excessive potency the retarder will of course have the reverse effect to the accelerator 
used alone it should enable the patient to spread a few seconds over many hours of ordinary time and so to maintain an apathetic inaction a glacier-like absence of alacrity amidst the most animated or irritating surroundings the two things together must necessarily work an entire revolution in civilized existence it is the beginning of our escape from that time garment of which carlyle speaks while this accelerator will enable us to concentrate ourselves with tremendous impact upon any moment or occasion that demands our utmost sense and vigour the retarder will enable us to pass in passive tranquillity through infinite hardship and tedium perhaps i am a little optimistic about the retarder which has indeed still to be discovered but about the accelerator there is no possible sort of doubt whatever its appearance upon the market in a convenient controllable and assimilable form is a matter of the next few months it will be obtainable of all chemists and druggists in small green bottles at a high but considering its extraordinary qualities by no means excessive price gibbon's nervous accelerator it will be called and he hopes to be able to supply it in three strengths one in two hundred one in nine hundred and one in two thousand distinguished by yellow pink and white labels respectively no doubt its use renders a great number of very extraordinary things possible for of course the most remarkable and possibly even criminal proceedings may be effected with impunity by thus dodging as it were into the interstices of time like all potent preparations it will be liable to abuse we have however discussed this aspect of the question very thoroughly and we have decided that this is purely a matter of medical jurisprudence and altogether outside our province we shall manufacture and sell the accelerator and as for the consequences we shall see end of section twenty seven Section 28 of The Country of the Blind and Other Stories by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Yearsley. The Truth About Pycraft He sits not a dozen yards away. If I glance over my shoulder, I can see him. And if I catch his eye, and usually I catch his eye, it meets me with an expression. It is mainly an imploring look, and yet with suspicion in it confound his suspicion if i wanted to tell on him i should have told long ago i don't tell and i don't tell and he ought to feel at his ease as if anything so gross and fat as he could feel at ease who would believe me if i did tell poor old pycraft great uneasy jelly of substance the fattest clubman in london he sits at one of the little club tables in the huge bay by the fire stuffing what is he stuffing i glance judiciously and catch him biting at a round of hot buttered tea-cake with his eyes on me confound him with his eyes on me that settles it pycraft since you will be abject since you will behave as though i was not a man of honour here right under your embedded eyes i write the thing down the plain truth about pycraft the man i helped the man i shielded 
and who has requited me by making my club unendurable absolutely unendurable with his liquid appeal with the perpetual don't tell of his looks and besides why does he keep on eternally eating well here goes for the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth pycroft i made the acquaintance of pycroft in this very smoking-room i was a young nervous new member and he saw it i was sitting all alone wishing i knew more of the members and suddenly he came a great rolling front of chins and abdomina towards me and grunted and sat down in a chair close by me and wheezed for a space and scraped for a space with a match and lit a cigar and then addressed me i forget what he said something about the matches not lighting properly and afterwards as he talked he kept stopping the waiters one by one as they went by and telling them about the matches in that thin fluty voice he has but anyhow it was in some such way we began our talking he talked about various things and came round to games and thence to my figure and complexion you ought to be a good cricketer he said i suppose i am slender slender to what some people would call lean and i suppose i am rather dark still i am not ashamed of having a hindu great-grandmother but for all that i don't want casual strangers to see through me at a glance to her so that i was set against pycroft from the beginning but he only talked about me in order to get to himself i expect he said you take no more exercise than i do and probably you eat no less like all excessively obese people he fancied he ate nothing yet and he smiled an oblique smile we differ and then he began to talk about his fatness and his fatness all he did for his fatness and all he was going to do for his fatness what people had advised him to do for his fatness and what he had heard of people doing for fatness similar to his a priori he said one would think a question of nutrition could be answered by dietary and a question of assimilation by drugs it was stifling it was dumpling talk it made me feel swelled to hear him one stands that sort of thing once in a way at a club but a time came when i fancied i was standing too much he took to me altogether too conspicuously i could never go into the smoking-room but he would come wallowing towards me and sometimes he came and gormandized round and about me while i had my lunch he seemed at times almost to be clinging to me he was a bore but not so fearful a bore as to be limited to me and from the first there was something in his manner almost as though he knew almost as though he penetrated to the fact that i might that there was a remote exceptional chance in me that no one else presented i'd give anything to get it down he would say anything and peer at me over his vast cheeks and pant poor old pycroft he has just gonged no doubt to order another buttered tea-cake he came to the actual thing one day our pharmacopoeia he said our western pharmacopoeia is anything but the last word of medical science in the east i've been told he stopped and stared at me it was like being at an aquarium i was quite suddenly angry with him look here i said who told you about my great-grandmother's recipes 
well he fenced every time we've met for a week i said and we've met pretty often you've given me a broad hint or so about that little secret of mine well he said now the cat's out of the bag i'll admit yes it is so i had it from pattison indirectly he said which i believe was lying yes pattison i said took that stuff at his own risk he pursed his mouth and bowed my great-grandmother's recipes i said are queer things to handle my father was near making me promise he didn't no but he warned me he himself used one once ah but do you think suppose suppose there did happen to be one the things are curious documents i said even the smell of em no but after going so far pycroft was resolved i should go farther i was always a little afraid if i tried his patience too much he would fall on me suddenly and smother me i own i was weak but i was also annoyed with pycroft i had got to that state of feeling for him that disposed me to say well take the risk the little affair of pattison to which i have alluded was a different matter altogether what it was doesn't concern us now but i knew anyhow that the particular recipe i used then was safe the rest i didn't know so much about and on the whole i was inclined to doubt their safety pretty completely yet even if pycroft got poisoned i must confess the poisoning of pycroft struck me as an immense undertaking that evening i took that queer odd-scented sandalwood box out of my safe and turned the rustling skins over the gentleman who wrote the recipes for my great-grandmother evidently had a weakness for skins of a miscellaneous origin and his handwriting was cramped to the last degree some of the things are quite unreadable to me though my family with its indian civil service associations has kept up a knowledge of hindustani from generation to generation and none are absolutely plain sailing but i found the one that i knew was there soon enough and sat on the floor by my safe for some time looking at it look here said i to pycroft next day and snatched the slip away from his eager grasp so far as i can make it out this is a recipe for loss of weight ah said pycroft i'm not absolutely sure but i think it's that and if you take my advice you'll leave it alone because you know i blacken my blood in your interest pycroft my ancestors on that side were so far as i can gather a jolly queer lot see let me try it said pycroft i leant back in my chair my imagination made one mighty effort and fell flat within me what in heaven's name pycroft i asked do you think you'll look like when you get thin he was impervious to reason i made him promise never to say a word to me about his disgusting fatness again whatever happened never and then i handed him that little piece of skin it's nasty stuff i said no matter he said and took it he goggled at it but but he said he had just discovered that it wasn't english to the best of my ability i said i will do you a translation i did my best after that we didn't speak for a fortnight whenever he approached me i frowned and motioned him away and he respected our compact but at the end of the fortnight he was as fat as ever and then he got a word in i must speak he said 
it isn't fair there's something wrong it's done me no good you're not doing your great-grandmother justice where's the recipe he produced it gingerly from his pocket-book i ran my eye over the items was the egg addled i asked no ought it to have been that i said goes without saying in all my poor dear great-grandmother's recipes when condition or quality is not specified you must get the worst she was drastic or nothing and there's one or two possible alternatives to some of these other things you got fresh rattlesnake venom i got a rattlesnake from jamrak's it cost it cost that's your affair anyhow this last item i know a man who yes hmm well i'll write the alternatives down so far as i know the language the spelling of this recipe is particularly atrocious by the by dog here probably means pariah dog for a month after that i saw pycroft constantly at the club and as fat and anxious as ever he kept our treaty but at times he broke the spirit of it by shaking his head despondently then one day in the cloakroom he said your great-grandmother not a word against her i said and he held his peace i could have fancied he had desisted and i saw him one day talking to three new members about his fatness as though he was in search of other recipes and then quite unexpectedly his telegram came mr formalin bawled a page-boy under my nose and i took the telegram and opened it at once for heaven's sake come pycroft oh said i and to tell the truth i was so pleased at the rehabilitation of my great-grandmother's reputation this evidently promised that i made a most excellent lunch i got pycroft's address from the hall porter pycroft inhabited the upper half of a house in bloomsbury and i went there so soon as i had done my coffee and trappistine i did not wait to finish my cigar mr pycroft said i at the front door they believed he was ill he hadn't been out for two days he expects me said i and they sent me up i rang the bell at the lattice door upon the landing he shouldn't have tried it anyhow i said to myself a man who eats like a pig ought to look like a pig an obviously worthy woman with an anxious face and a carelessly placed cap came and surveyed me through the lattice i gave my name and she let me in in a dubious fashion well said i as we stood together inside pycroft's piece of the landing he said you was to come in if you came she said and regarded me making no motion to show me anywhere and then confidentially he's locked in sir locked in locked himself in yesterday morning and hasn't let anyone in since sir and ever and again swearing oh my i stared at the door she indicated by her glances in there i said yes sir what's up she shook her head sadly he keeps on calling for vittles sir heavy vittles he wants i get him what i can pork he's had suet pudding sausages new bread everything like that left outside if you please and me go away he's eating sir something awful there came a piping ball from inside the door that formalin that you pycroft i shouted and went and banged the door tell her to go away i did then i could hear a curious pattering upon the door almost like someone feeling for the handle in the dark and pycroft's familiar grunts it's all right i said she's gone but for a long time the door didn't open 
I heard the key turn. Then Pycroft's voice said, Come in. I turned the handle and opened the door. Naturally, I expected to see Pycroft. Well, you know, he wasn't there. I never had such a shock in my life. There was his sitting-room, in a state of untidy disorder, plates and dishes among the books and writing things, and several chairs overturned, but Pycroft? It's all right, old man. Shut the door, he said, and then I discovered him. There he was, right up close to the cornice, in the corner by the door, as though someone had glued him to the ceiling. His face was anxious and angry. He panted and gesticulated. Shut the door, he said, if that woman gets hold of it. I shut the door and went and stood away from him and stared. If anything gives way and you tumble down, I said, you'll break your neck, Pycroft. I wish I could, he wheezed. A man of your age and weight getting up to kiddish gymnastics? Don't, he said, and looked agonized. I'll tell you, he said, and gesticulated. How the deuce, said I, are you holding on up there? And then abruptly I realized that he was not holding on at all, that he was floating up there just as a gas-filled bladder might have floated in the same position. He began a struggle to thrust himself away from the ceiling and to clamber down the wall to me. "'It's that prescription,' he panted as he did so. "'Your great-grand—' He took hold of a framed engraving rather carelessly as he spoke, and it gave way, and he flew back up to the ceiling again, while the picture smashed onto the sofa. Bumpy went against the ceiling, and I knew then why he was all over white on the more salient curves and angles of his person. He tried again more carefully, coming down by way of the mantel. It was really a most extraordinary spectacle, that great, fat, apoplectic-looking man, upside down and trying to get from the ceiling to the floor. "'That prescription,' he said. "'Too successful. How? Loss of weight, almost complete.' And then, of course, I understood. "'By Jove, Pycroft,' said I, "'what you wanted was a cure for fatness. But you always called it weight. You would call it weight.' Somehow I was extremely delighted. I quite liked Pycroft for the time. "'Let me help you,' I said, and took his hand and pulled him down. He kicked about, trying to get foothold somewhere. It was very like holding a flag on a windy day. "'That's table,' he said, pointing is solid mahogany and very heavy. If you can put me under that. I did, and there he wallowed about like a captive balloon, while I stood on his hearthrug and talked to him. I lit a cigar. Tell me, I said, what happened? I took it, he said. How did it taste? Oh, beastly. I should fancy they all did, whether one regards the ingredients, or the probable compound, or the possible results. Almost all my great-grandmother's remedies appear, to me at least, to be extraordinarily uninviting. For my own part, I took a little sip first, yes, and as I felt lighter and better after an hour, I decided to take the draught. My dear Pycroft, I held my nose, he explained, and then I kept on getting lighter and lighter and helpless, you know. He gave way suddenly to a burst of passion. "'What the goodness am I to do?' he said. "'There's one thing pretty evident,' I said, "'that you mustn't do. "'If you go out of doors, you'll go up and up.' "'I waved an arm upward. "'They'd have to send Santos Dumont after you "'to bring you down again.' "'I suppose it will wear off.' "'I shook my head. "'I don't think you can count on that,' I said. "'And then there was another burst of passion, "'and he kicked out at adjacent chairs and banged the floor. 
he behaved just as i should have expected a great fat self-indulgent man to behave under trying circumstances that is to say very badly he spoke of me and of my great-grandmother with an utter want of discretion i never asked you to take the stuff i said and generously disregarding the insults he was putting upon me i sat down in his armchair and began to talk to him in a sober friendly fashion i pointed out to him that this was a trouble he had brought upon himself and that it had almost an air of poetical justice he had eaten too much this he disputed and for a time we argued the point he became noisy and violent so i desisted from this aspect of his lesson and then said i you committed the sin of euphuism you called it not fat which is just and inglorious but weight you he interrupted to say that he recognized all that what was he to do i suggested he should adapt himself to his new conditions so we came to the really sensible part of the business i suggested that it would not be difficult for him to learn to walk about on the ceiling with his hands i can't sleep he said but that was no great difficulty it was quite possible i pointed out to make a shake-up under a wire mattress fasten the under things on with tapes and have a blanket sheet and coverlet to button at the side he would have to confide in his housekeeper i said and after some squabbling he agreed to that afterwards it was quite delightful to see the beautifully matter-of-fact way with which the good lady took all these amazing inversions he could have a library ladder in his room and all his meals could be laid on the top of his bookcase we also hit on an ingenious device by which he could get to the floor whenever he wanted which was simply to put the british encyclopedia tenth edition on the top of his open shelves he just pulled out a couple of volumes and held on and down he came and we agreed that there must be iron staples along the skirting so that he could cling to those whenever he wanted to get about the room on the lower level as we got on with the thing i found myself almost keenly interested it was i who called in the housekeeper and broke matters to her and it was i chiefly who fixed up the inverted bed in fact i spent two whole days at his flat i am a handy interfering sort of man with a screwdriver and i made all sorts of ingenious adaptations for him ran a wire to bring his bells within reach turned all his electric lights up instead of down and so on the whole affair was extremely curious and interesting to me and it was delightful to think of pycroft like some great fat blowfly crawling about on his ceiling and clambering around the lintel of his doors from one room to another and never 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 coming to the club any more then you know my fatal ingenuity got the better of me i was sitting by his fire drinking his whisky and he was up in his favourite corner by the cornice tacking a turkey carpet to the ceiling when the idea struck me by jove pycroft i said all this is totally unnecessary and before i could calculate the complete consequences of my notion i blurted it out lead underclothing said i and the mischief was done pycroft received the thing almost in tears to be right ways up again he said i gave him the whole secret before i saw where it would take me buy sheet lead i said stamp it into discs sew em all over your underclothes until you have enough have lead-soled boots carry a bag of solid lead and the thing is done 
instead of being a prisoner here you may go abroad again pycroft you may travel a still happier idea came to me you need never fear a shipwreck all you need do is just slip off some or all of your clothes take the necessary amount of luggage in your hand and float up in the air in his emotion he dropped the tack hammer within an ace of my head by jove he said i shall be able to come back to the club again the thing pulled me up short by jove i said faintly yes of course you will he did he does there he sits behind me now stuffing as i live a third go of buttered tea-cake and no one in the whole world knows except his housekeeper and me that he weighs practically nothing that he is a mere boring mass of assimilatory matter mere clouds in clothing niente nefas the most inconsiderable of men there he sits watching until i have done this writing then if he can he will waylay me he will come billowing up to me he will tell me over again all about it how it feels how it doesn't feel how he sometimes hope it is passing off a little and always somewhere in that fat abundant discourse he will say the secret's keeping eh if anyone knew of it i should be so ashamed makes a fellow look such a fool you know crawling about on a ceiling and all that and now to elude pycroft occupying as he does an admirable strategic position between me and the door end of section twenty eight Section twenty nine of the Country of the Blind and Other Stories by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Yearsley. The Magic Shop. I had seen the Magic Shop from afar several times. I had passed it once or twice, a shop window of alluring little objects magic balls, magic hens, wonderful cones, ventriloquist dolls the material of the basket trick packs of cards that looked all right and all that sort of thing but never had i thought of going in until one day almost without warning jip hauled me by my finger right up to the window and so conducted himself that there was nothing for it but to take him in i had not thought the place was there to tell the truth a modest-sized frontage in Regent Street, between the picture-shop and the place where the chicks run about, just out of patent incubators. But there it was, sure enough. I had fancied it was down nearer the circus, or round the corner in Oxford Street, or even in Holborn, always over the way, and a little inaccessible it had been, with something of the mirage in its position. But here it was now, quite indisputably, and the fat end of Jip's pointing finger made a noise upon the glass. "'If I was rich,' said Jip, dabbing a finger at the disappearing egg, "'I'd buy myself that, and that,' which was the crying baby, very human, "'and that,' which was a mystery, and called, so a neat card asserted, "'Buy one and astonish your friends.' "'Anything,' said Jip, "'will disappear under one of those cones. I've read about it in a book. And there, Dadda, is the vanishing halfpenny only they put it this way up so as we can't see how it's done jip dear boy inherits his mother's breeding and he did not propose to enter the shop or worry in any way 
only you know quite unconsciously he lugged my finger doorward and he made his interest clear that he said and pointed to the magic bottle if you had that i said at which promising inquiry he looked up with a sudden radiance i could show it to jessie he said thoughtful as ever of others it's less than a hundred days to your birthday gibbles i said and laid my hand on the door-handle jip made no answer but his grip tightened on my finger and so we came into the shop it was no common shop this it was a magic shop and all the prancing precedence jip would have taken in the matter of mere toys was wanting he left the burthen of the conversation to me it was a little narrow shop not very well lit and the door-bell pinged again with a plaintive note as we closed it behind us for a moment or so we were alone and could glance about us there was a tiger in papier-mâché on the glass case that covered the low counter a grave kind-eyed tiger that waggled his head in a methodical manner there were several crystal spheres a china hand holding magic cards a stock of magic fish-bowls in various sizes and an immodest magic hat that shamelessly displayed its springs on the floor were magic mirrors one to draw you out long and thin one to swell your head and vanish your legs and one to make you short and fat like a draught and while we were laughing at these the shopman as i suppose came in at any rate there he was behind the counter a curious sallow dark man with one ear larger than the other and a chin like the toe-cap of a boot what can we have the pleasure he said spreading his long magic fingers on the glass case and so with a start we were aware of him i want i said to buy my little boy a few simple tricks legerdemain he asked mechanical domestic anything amusing said i hmm said the shopman and scratched his head for a moment as if thinking then quite distinctly he drew from his head a glass ball something in this way he said and held it out the action was unexpected i had seen the trick done at entertainments endless times before it's part of the common stock of conjurers but i had not expected it here that's good i said with a laugh isn't it said the shopman jip stretched out his disengaged hand to take this object and found merely a blank palm it's in your pocket said the shopman and there it was how much will that be i asked we make no charge for glass balls said the shopman politely we get them he picked one out of his elbow as he spoke free he produced another from the back of his neck and laid it beside its predecessor on the counter jip regarded his glass ball sagely then directed a look of inquiry at the two on the counter and finally brought his round-eyed scrutiny to the shopman who smiled you may have those two said the shopman and if you don't mind one from my mouth so jip counselled me mutely for a moment and then in a profound silence put away the four balls resumed my reassuring finger and nerved himself for the next event we get all our smaller tricks in that way the shopman remarked i laughed in the manner of one who subscribes to a jest instead of going to the wholesale shop i said of course it's cheaper in a way the shopman said 
though we pay in the end, but not so heavily as people suppose. Our larger tricks and our daily provisions and all the other things we want, we get out of that hat. And you know, sir, if you'll excuse my saying it, there isn't a wholesale shop. Not for genuine magic goods, sir. I don't know if you noticed our inscription. The genuine magic shop. He drew a business card from his cheek and handed it to me. Genuine, he said, with his finger on the word, and added, There is absolutely no deception, sir. He seemed to be carrying out the joke pretty thoroughly, I thought. He turned to Jip with a smile of remarkable affability. You, you know, are the right sort of boy. I was surprised at his knowing that, because in the interests of discipline we keep it rather a secret, even at home. But Jip received it in unflinching silence, keeping a steadfast eye on him. It's only the right sort of boy gets through that doorway. And as if by way of illustration, there came a rattling at the door, and a squeaking little voice could be faintly heard, Yeah, I want to go in there, Dada. I want to go in there, yeah. And then the accents of a downtrodden parent, urging consolations and propitiations. It's locked, Edward, he said. But it isn't, said I. It is, sir, said the shopman, always for that sort of child. And as he spoke, we had a glimpse of the other youngster, a little white face pallid from sweet-eating and over-sapid food and distorted by evil passions, a ruthless little egotist, pouring at the enchanted pain. "'It's no good, sir,' said the shopman as I moved, with my natural helpfulness, doorward, and presently the spoilt child was carried off howling. "'How do you manage that?' I said, breathing a little more freely. "'Magic,' said the shopman, with a careless wave of the hand and behold, sparks of coloured fire flew out of his fingers and vanished into the shadows of the shop. "'You were saying,' he said, addressing himself to Jip, before you came in, that you would like one of our buy-one-and-astonish-your-friends boxes. Jip, after a gallant effort, said, "'Yes, it's in your pocket,' and, leaning over the counter, he really had an extraordinary long body, this amazing person produced the article in the customary conjurer's manner. Paper, he said, and took a sheet out of the empty hat with the springs. String. And behold, his mouth was a string-box, from which he drew an unending thread, which, when he had tied his parcel, he bit off, and it seemed to me swallowed the ball of string. And then he lit a candle at the nose of one of the ventriloquist's dummies, stuck one of his fingers— which had become sealing wax red, into the flame, and so sealed the parcel. Then there was the disappearing egg, he remarked, and produced one from within my coat-breast, and packed it, and also the crying baby, very human. I handed each parcel to Jip as it was ready, and he clasped them to his chest. He said very little, but his eyes were eloquent. The clutch of his arms was eloquent. He was the playground of unspeakable emotions. These, you know, were real magics. Then, with a start, I discovered something moving about in my hat, something soft and jumpy. I whipped it off, and a ruffled pigeon, no doubt a confederate, 
dropped out and ran on the counter and went i fancy into a cardboard box behind the papier-mache tiger said the shopman dexterously relieving me of my headdress careless bird and as i live nesting he shook my hat and shook out into his extended hand two or three eggs a large marble a watch about half a dozen of the inevitable glass balls and then crumpled crinkled paper more and more and more talking all the time of the way in which people neglect to brush their hats inside as well as out politely of course but with a certain personal application all sorts of things accumulate sir not you of course in particular nearly every customer astonishing what they carry about with them the crumpled paper rose and billowed on the counter more and more and more until he was nearly hidden from us until he was altogether hidden and still his voice went on and on we none of us know what the fair semblance of a human being may conceal sir are we all then no better than brushed exteriors whited sepulchres his voice stopped exactly like when you hit a neighbour's gramophone with a well-aimed brick the same instant silence and the rustle of the paper stopped and everything was still have you done with my hat i said after an interval there was no answer i stared at jip and jip stared at me and there were our distortions in the magic mirrors looking very rum and grave and quiet i think we'll go now i said will you tell me how much all this comes to i say i said on a rather louder note i want the bill and my hat please it might have been a sniff from behind the paper pile let's look behind the counter jip i said he's making fun of us i led jip round the head-wagging tiger and what do you think there was behind the counter no one at all only my hat on the floor and a common conjurer's lop-eared white rabbit lost in meditation and looking as stupid and crumpled as only a conjurer's rabbit can do i resumed my hat and the rabbit lolloped a lollop or so out of my way dada said jip in a guilty whisper what is it jip said i i do like this shop dada so should i i said to myself if the counter wouldn't suddenly extend itself to shut one off from the door but i didn't call jip's attention to that pussy he said with a hand out to the rabbit as it came lolloping past us do jip a magic and his eyes followed it as it squeezed through a door i had certainly not remarked a moment before then this door opened wider and the man with one ear larger than the other appeared again he was smiling still but his eye met mine with something between amusement and defiance you'd like to see our showroom sir he said with an innocent suavity jip tugged my finger forward i glanced at the counter and met the shopman's eye again i was beginning to think the magic just a little too genuine we haven't very much time i said but somehow we were inside the showroom before i could finish that all goods of the same quality said the shopman rubbing his flexible hands together and that is the best nothing in the place that isn't genuine magic and warranted thoroughly rum excuse me sir i felt him pull at something that clung to my coat-sleeve and then i saw he held a little wriggling red demon by the tail 
the little creature bit and fought and tried to get at his hand and in a moment he tossed it carelessly behind a counter no doubt the thing was only an image of twisted india-rubber but for the moment and his gesture was exactly that of a man who handles some petty biting bit of vermin i glanced at jip but jip was looking at a magic rocking-horse i was glad he hadn't seen the thing i say i said in an undertone and indicating jip and the red demon with my eyes you haven't many things like that about have you none of ours probably brought it with you said the shopman also in an undertone and with a more dazzling smile than ever astonishing what people will carry about with them unawares and then to jip do you see anything you fancy here there were many things that jip fancied there he turned to this astonishing tradesman with mingled confidence and respect is that a magic sword he said a magic toy sword it neither bends breaks nor cuts the fingers it renders the bearer invincible in battle against any one under eighteen half a crown to seven and sixpence according to size these panoplies on cards are for juvenile knights errant and very useful shield of safety sandals of swiftness helmet of invisibility oh dad gasped jip i tried to find out what they cost but the shopman did not heed me he had got jip now he had got him away from my finger he had embarked upon the exposition of all his confounded stock and nothing was going to stop him presently i saw with a qualm of distrust and something very like jealousy that jip had hold of this person's finger as usually he has hold of mine no doubt the fellow was interesting i thought and had an interestingly faked lot of stuff really good faked stuff still i wandered after them saying very little but keeping an eye on this press digital fellow after all jip was enjoying it and no doubt when the time came to go we should all be able to go quite easily it was a long rambling place that showroom a gallery broken up by stands and stalls and pillars with archways leading off to other departments in which the queerest looking assistants loafed and stared at one and with perplexing mirrors and curtains so perplexing indeed were these that i was presently unable to make out the door by which we had come the shopman showed jip magic trains that ran without steam or clockwork just as you set the signals and then some very very valuable boxes of soldiers that all came alive directly you took off the lid and said i myself haven't a very quick ear and it was a tongue-twisting sound but jip he has his mother's ear got it in no time bravo said the shopman putting the men back into the box unceremoniously and handing it to jip now said the shopman and in a moment jip had made them all alive again you'll take that box asked the shopman we'll take that box said i unless you charge its full value in which case it would need a trust magnate dear heart no and the shopman swept the little men back again shut the lid waved the box in the air and there it was in brown paper tied up and with jip's full name and address on the paper the shopman laughed at my amazement this is the genuine magic he said the real thing 
it's a little too genuine for my taste i said again after that he fell to showing jip tricks odd tricks and still odder the way they were done he explained them he turned them inside out and there was the dear little chap nodding his busy bit of a head in the sagest manner i did not attend as well as i might hey presto said the magic shopman and then would come the clear small hey presto of the boy but i was distracted by other things it was being borne in upon me just how tremendously rum this place was it was so to speak inundated by a sense of rumness there was something a little rum about the fixtures even about the ceiling about the floor about the casually distributed chairs i had a queer feeling that whenever i wasn't looking at them straight they went askew and moved about and played a noiseless puss in the corner behind my back and the cornice had a serpentine design with masks masks altogether too expressive for proper plaster then abruptly my attention was caught by one of the odd-looking assistants he was some way off and evidently unaware of my presence i saw a sort of three-quarter length of him over a pile of toys and through an arch and you know he was leaning against a pillar in an idle sort of way doing the most horrid things with his features the particular horrid thing he did was with his nose he did it just as though he was idle and wanted to amuse himself first of all it was a short blobby nose and then suddenly he shot it out like a telescope and then out it flew and became thinner and thinner until it was like a long red flexible whip like a thing in a nightmare it was he flourished it about and flung it forth as a fly-fisher flings his line my instant thought was that jip mustn't see him i turned about and there was jip quite preoccupied with the shopman and thinking no evil they were whispering together and looking at me jip was standing on a little stool and the shopman was holding a sort of big drum in his hand hide and seek dada cried jip you're he and before i could do anything to prevent it the shopman had clapped the big drum over him i saw what was up directly take that off i cried this instant you'll frighten the boy take it off the shopman with the unequal ears did so without a word and held the big cylinder towards me to show its emptiness and the little stall was vacant in that instant my boy had utterly disappeared you know perhaps that sinister something that comes like a hand out of the unseen and grips your heart about you know it takes your common self away and leaves you tense and deliberate neither slow nor hasty neither angry nor afraid so it was with me i came up to this grinning shopman and kicked his stool aside stop this folly i said where is my boy you see he said still displaying the drum's interior there is no deception i put out my hand to grip him and he eluded me by a dexterous movement i snatched again and he turned from me and pushed open a door to escape stop i said and he laughed receding i leapt after him into utter darkness thud lord bless my heart i didn't see you coming sir i was in regent street and i had collided with a decent-looking working man and a yard away perhaps and looking a little perplexed with himself was jip there was some sort of apology and then jip had turned and come to me with a bright little smile as though for a moment he had missed me 
and he was carrying four parcels in his arm. He secured immediate possession of my finger. For the second, I was rather at a loss. I stared round to see the door of the magic shop, and behold, it was not there. There was no door, no shop, nothing, only the common pilaster between the shop where they sell pictures and the window with the chicks. I did the only thing possible in that mental tumult. I walked straight to the curbstone and held up my umbrella for a cab. Ansoms, said Jip, in a note of culminating exultation. I helped him in, recalled my address with an effort, and got in also. Something unusual proclaimed itself in my tailcoat pocket, and I felt and discovered a glass ball. With a petulant expression, I flung it into the street. Jip said nothing. For a space, neither of us spoke. Dadda, said Jip at last, that was a proper shop. I came round with that to the problem of just how the whole thing had seemed to him. He looked completely undamaged. So far, good. He was neither scared nor unhinged. He was simply tremendously satisfied with the afternoon's entertainment, and there in his arms were the four parcels. Confound it, what could be in them? Um, I said, little boys can't go to shops like that every day. He received this with his usual stoicism, and for a moment I was sorry I was his father and not his mother, and so couldn't suddenly there, coram publico, in our hansom, kiss him. After all, I thought, the thing wasn't so very bad. But it was only when we opened the parcels that I really began to be reassured. Three of them contained boxes of soldiers, quite ordinary lead soldiers, but of so good a quality as to make Jip altogether forget that originally these parcels had been magic tricks of the only genuine sort, and the fourth contained a kitten, a little living white kitten, in excellent health and appetite and temper. I saw this unpacking with a sort of provisional relief. I hung about in the nursery for quite an unconscionable time. That happened six months ago, and now I am beginning to believe it is all right. The kitten had only the magic natural to all kittens, and the soldiers seemed as steady a company as any colonel could desire. And Jip, the intelligent parent, will understand that I have to go cautiously with Jip. But I went so far as this one day. I said, How would you like your soldiers to come alive, Jip, and march about by themselves? Mine do, said Jip. I just have to say a word I know before I open the lid. Then they march about alone. Oh, quite, Dadda. I shouldn't like them if they didn't do that. I displayed no unbecoming surprise, and since then I have taken occasion to drop in upon him once or twice unannounced when the soldiers were about. But so far I have never discovered them performing in anything like a magical manner. It's so difficult to tell. There's also a question of finance. I have an incurable habit of paying bills. I have been up and down Regent Street several times, looking for that shop. I am inclined to think, indeed, that in that manner honour is satisfied, and that, since Jip's name and address are known to them, I may very well leave it to these people, whoever they may be, to send in their bill in their own time. 
End of section 29、section When Captain Guerriot received instructions to take his new gunboat, the Benjamin Constant, to Badama on the Betamo arm of the Guaramadema, and there assist the inhabitants against a plague of ants, he suspected the authorities of mockery. His promotion had been romantic and irregular. The affections of a prominent Brazilian lady and the captain's liquid eyes had played a part in the process, and the Diario and O Futuro. Had been lamentably disrespectful in their comments. He felt he was to give further occasion for disrespect. He was a Creole. His conceptions of etiquette and discipline were pure blooded Portuguese, and it was only to Holroyd, the Lancashire engineer who had come over with the boat, and as an exercise in the use of English, his th sounds were very uncertain, that he opened his heart. It is in effect, he said, to make me absurd. What can a man do against ants? They come, they go. They say, said Holroyd, that these don't go. That chap you said was a Sambo. Sambo, it is a sort of mixture of blood. Sambo, you said the people are going. The captain smoked fretfully for a time. These things have to happen, he said at last. What is it? Plagues of ants and such like as God wills. There was a plague in Trinidad. The little ants that carry leaves. All the orange trees, all the mangoes. What does it matter? Sometimes ant armies come into your houses, fighting ants, a different sort. You go, and they clean the house. Then you come back again, the house is clean, like new. No cockroaches, no fleas, no jiggers in the floor. That Sambo chap, said Holroyd, says these are a different sort of ant. The captain shrugged his shoulders, fumed, and gave his attention to a cigarette. Afterwards, he reopened the subject. My dear Olroyd, what am I to do about these infernal ants? The captain reflected. It is ridiculous, he said. But in the afternoon he put on his full uniform and went ashore, and jars and boxes came back to the ship, and subsequently he did. And Holroyd sat on the deck in the evening coolness, and smoked profoundly, and marvelled at Brazil. They were six days up the Amazon, some hundreds of miles from the ocean. And east and west of him there was a horizon like the sea, and to the south nothing but a sandbank island with some tufts of scrub. The water was always running like a sluice, thick with dirt, animated with crocodiles and hovering birds, and fed by some inexhaustible source of tree trunks, and the waste of it, the headlong waste of it, filled his soul. The town of Alemkur. With its meagre church, its thatched sheds for houses, its discoloured ruins of ampler days, seemed a little thing lost in this wilderness of nature, a sixpence dropped on Sahara. He was a young man. This was his first sight of the tropics. He came straight from England, where nature is hedged, ditched, and drained into the perfection of submission, and he had suddenly discovered the insignificance of man. For six days they had been steaming up from the sea by unfrequented channels, and man had been as rare as a rare butterfly. One saw one day a canoe, another day a distant station, the next no men at all. 
he began to perceive that man is indeed a rare animal having but a precarious hold upon this land he perceived it more clearly as the days passed and he made his devious way to the batemo in the company of this remarkable commander who ruled over one big gun and was forbidden to waste his ammunition holroyd was learning spanish industriously but he was still in the present tense and substantive stage of speech and the only other person who had any words of english was a negro stoker who had them all wrong the second in command was a portuguese dacuna who spoke french but it was a different sort of french from the french holroyd had learned in southport and their intercourse was confined to politenesses and simple propositions about the weather and the weather like everything else in this amazing new world the weather had no human aspect and was hot by night and hot by day and the air steam even the wind was hot steam smelling of vegetation in decay and the alligators and the strange birds the flies of many sorts and sizes the beetles the ants the snakes and monkeys seemed to wonder what man was doing in an atmosphere that had no gladness in its sunshine and no coolness in its night to wear clothing was intolerable but to cast it aside was to scorch by day and expose an ampler area to the mosquitoes by night to go on deck by day was to be blinded by glare and to stay below was to suffocate and in the daytime came certain flies extremely clever and noxious about one's wrist and ankle captain guerrillo who was holroyd's sole distraction from these physical distresses developed into a formidable bore telling the simple story of his heart's affections day by day a string of anonymous women as if he was telling beads sometimes he suggested sport and they shot at alligators and at rare intervals they came to human aggregations in the waste of trees and stayed for a day or so and drank and sat about and one night danced with the creole girls who found holroyd's poor elements of spanish without either past tense or future amply sufficient for their purposes but these were mere luminous chinks in the long grey passage of the streaming river up which the throbbing engines beat a certain liberal heathen deity in the shape of a demi-john held seductive court aft and it is probable forward but guerrillo learned things about the ants more things and more at this stopping-place and that and became interested in his mission they are a new sort of ant he said we have got to be what do you call it entomology big five centimetres some bigger it is ridiculous we are like the monkeys sent to pick insects but they are eating up the country he burst out indignantly suppose suddenly there are complications with europe here am i soon we shall be above the rio negro and my gun useless he nursed his knee and mused those people who were there at the dancing place they have come down they have lost all they got the ants come to dare house one afternoon everyone run out you know when the ants come one must everyone runs out and they go over the house if you stayed they'd eat you see well presently they go back they say the ants have gone the ants haven't gone they try to go in the son he goes in the ants fight swarm over him bite him 
presently he comes out again screaming and running he runs past them to the river see he gets into the water and drowns the ants yes Geriot paused brought his liquid eyes close to holroyd's face tapped holroyd's knee with his knuckle that night he dies just as if he was stung by a snake poisoned by the ants who knows Geriot shrugged his shoulders perhaps they bit him badly when i joined this service i joined to fight men these things these ants they come and go it is no business for men after that he talked frequently of the ants to holroyd and whenever they chanced to drift against any speck of humanity in that waste of water and sunshine and distant trees holroyd's improving knowledge of the language enabled him to recognize the ascendant word sauba more and more completely dominating the whole he perceived the ants were becoming interesting and the nearer he drew to them the more interesting they became guerriot abandoned his old themes almost suddenly and the portuguese lieutenant became a conversational figure he knew something about the leaf-cutting ant and expanded his knowledge Carillo sometimes rendered what he had to tell to holroyd he told of the little workers that swarm and fight and the big workers that command and rule and how these latter always crawled to the neck and how their bites drew blood he told how they cut leaves and made fungus beds and how their nests in caracas are sometimes a hundred yards across two days the three men spent disputing whether ants have eyes the discussion grew dangerously heated on the second afternoon and holroyd saved the situation by going ashore in a boat to catch ants and see he captured various specimens and returned and some had eyes and some hadn't also they argued do ants bite or sting these ants said guerrillo after collecting information at a rancho have big eyes they don't run about blind not as most ants do no they get in corners and watch what you do and they sting asked holroyd yes they sting there is poison in the sting he meditated i do not see what men can do against ants they come and go but these don't go they will said guerrillo past tamandu there is a long low coast of eighty miles without any population and then one comes to the confluence of the main river and the batemo arm like a great lake and then the forest came nearer came at last intimately near the character of the channel changes snags abound and the benjamin constant moored by a cable that night under the very shadow of dark trees for the first time for many days came a spell of coolness and holroyd and guerriot sat late smoking cigars and enjoying this delicious sensation guerriot's mind was full of ants and what they could do he decided to sleep at last and lay down on a mattress on deck a man hopelessly perplexed his last words when he already seemed asleep were to ask with a flourish of despair what can one do with ants the whole thing is absurd holroyd was left to scratch his bitten wrists and meditate alone he sat on the bulwark and listened to the little changes in Guerriot's breathing until he was fast asleep, and then the ripple and lap of the stream took his mind, and brought back that sense of immensity that had been growing upon him since first he had left Para and come up the river. The monitor showed but one small light, and there was first a little talking forward, and then stillness. 
His eyes went from the dim black outlines of the middle works of the gunboat towards the bank, to the black, overwhelming mysteries of forest, lit now and then by a firefly, and never still from the murmur of alien and mysterious activities. It was the inhuman immensity of this land that astonished and oppressed him. He knew the skies were empty of men, the stars were specks in an incredible vastness of space, he knew the ocean was enormous and untamable, but in England he had come to think of the land as man's. In England it is indeed man's. The wild things live by sufferance, grow on lease. Everywhere the roads, the fences, and absolute security runs. In an atlas, too, the land is man's, and all coloured to show his claim to it, in vivid contrast to the universal independent blueness of the sea. He had taken it for granted that a day would come when everywhere about the earth, plough and culture, light tramways and good roads, an ordered security, would prevail. But now he doubted. This forest was interminable. It had an air of being invincible, and man seemed at best an infrequent, precarious intruder. One travelled for miles amidst the still, silent struggle of giant trees, of strangulating creepers, of assertive flowers. Everywhere the alligator, the turtle, and endless varieties of birds and insects seemed at home, dwelt irreplaceably, but man, man at most, held a footing upon resentful clearings, fought weeds, fought beasts and insects for the barest foothold fell a prey to snake and beast, insect and fever, and was presently carried away. In many places down the river he had been manifestly driven back. This deserted creek or that preserved the name of a casa, and here and there ruinous white walls and a shattered tower enforced the lesson. The puma, the jaguar, were more the masters here. Who were the real masters? In a few miles of this forest, there must be more ants than there are men in the whole world. This seemed to Holroyd a perfectly new idea. In a few thousand years, men had emerged from barbarism to a state of civilization that made them feel lords of the future and masters of the earth. But what was to prevent the ants evolving also? Such ants as one knew lived in little communities of a few thousand individuals made no concerted efforts against the greater world. But they had a language, they had an intelligence. Why should things stop at that, any more than men had stopped at the barbaric stage? Suppose, presently, the ants began to store knowledge, just as men had done by means of books and records, use weapons, form great empires, sustain a planned and organized war. Things came back to him, that Guerrier had gathered, about these ants they were approaching. They used a poison like the poison of snakes. They obeyed greater leaders, even as the leaf-cutting ants do. They were carnivorous, and where they came they stayed. The forest was very still. The water lapped incessantly against the side. About the lantern overhead there eddied a noiseless whirl of phantom moths. Guerrier stirred in the darkness and sighed. "'What can one do?' he murmured, and turned over and was still again. Holroyd was roused from meditations that were becoming sinister by the hum of a mosquito. 
Part two. The next morning Holroyd learnt they were within forty kilometres of Badama, and his interest in the banks intensified. He came up whenever an opportunity offered to examine his surroundings. He could see no signs of human occupation whatever, save for a weedy ruin of a house and the green-stained façade of the long-deserted monastery at Moju, with a forest tree growing out of a vacant window-space, and great creepers netted across its vacant portals. Several flights of strange yellow butterflies with semi-transparent wings crossed the river that morning, and many alighted on the monitor, and were killed by the men. It was towards afternoon that they came upon the derelict Cuberta. She did not at first appear to be derelict. Both her sails were set, and hanging slack in the afternoon calm, and there was the figure of a man sitting on the fore planking beside the shipped sweeps. Another man appeared to be sleeping face downwards on the sort of longitudinal bridge these big canoes have in the waist, but it was presently apparent, from the sway of her rudder and the way she drifted into the course of the gunboat, that something was out of order with her. Gerriot surveyed her through a field-glass, and became interested in the queer darkness of the face of the sitting man, a red-faced man he seemed, without a nose. Crouching he was rather than sitting, and the longer the captain looked, the less he liked to look at him, and the less able he was to take his glasses away. But he did so at last, and went a little way to call up Holroyd. Then he went back to hail the Cuberta. He hailed her again, and so she drove past him. Santa Rosa stood out clearly as her name. As she came by and into the wake of the monitor, she pitched a little, and suddenly the figure of the crouching man collapsed, as though all its joints had given way. His hat fell off, his head was not nice to look at, and his body flopped, lax, and rolled out of sight behind the bulwarks. "'Caramba!' cried Guerriot, and resorted to Holroyd forthwith. Holroyd was halfway up the companion. "'Did you see that?' said the captain. "'Dead,' said Holroyd. "'Yes, you'd better send a boat aboard. There's something wrong.' "'Did you, by any chance, see his face?' "'What was it like?' "'It was, ah, oh, I have no words.' And the captain suddenly turned his back on Holroyd, and became an active and strident commander. The gunboat came about, steamed parallel to the erratic course of the canoe, and dropped the boat with Lieutenant Dacuna and three sailors to board her. Then the curiosity of the captain made him draw up almost alongside as the lieutenant got aboard, so that the whole of the Santa Rosa deck and hold was visible to Holroyd. He saw now clearly that the sole crew of the vessel was these two dead men, and though he could not see their faces, he saw by their outstretched hands, which were all of ragged flesh, that they had been subjected to some strange exceptional process of decay. For a moment his attention concentrated on those two enigmatical bundles of dirty clothes and laxly flung limbs, and then his eyes went forward to discover the open hold, piled high with trunks and cases, and aft to where the little cabin gaped inexplicably empty. Then he became aware that the planks of the middle decking were dotted with moving black specks. His attention was riveted by these specks. They were all walking in directions radiating from the fallen man, in a manner—the image came unsought to his mind—like the crowd dispersing from a bullfight. He became aware of Guerriot beside him. "'Capo,' he said, "'can you focus as closely as those planks there?' Guerriot made an effort, 
grunted and handed him the glasses there followed a moment of scrutiny it's ants said the englishman and handed the focused field glass back to Gerio. his impression of them was of a crowd of large black ants very like ordinary ants except for their size and for the fact that some of the larger of them bore a sort of clothing of grey but at the time his inspection was too brief for particulars the head of lieutenant dacuna appeared over the side of the cuberta and a brief colloquy ensued you must go aboard said Guerriot. the lieutenant objected that the boat was full of ants you have your boots said Guerriot. the lieutenant changed the subject how did those men die captain Guerriot embarked upon speculations that holroyd could not follow and the two men disputed with a certain increasing vehemence holroyd took up the field-glass and resumed his scrutiny first of the ants and then of the dead man amidships he has described these ants to me very particularly he says they were as large as any ants he has ever seen black and moving with a steady deliberation very different from the mechanical fussiness of the common ant about one in twenty was much larger than its fellows and with an exceptionally large head these reminded him at once of the master workers who are said to rule over the leaf-cutter ants like them they seemed to be directing and coordinating the general movements they tilted their bodies back in a manner altogether singular as if they made some use of the forefeet and he had a curious fancy that he was too far off to verify that most of these ants of both kinds were wearing accoutrements had things strapped about their bodies by bright white bands like white metal threads he put down the glasses abruptly realizing that the question of discipline between the captain and his subordinate had become acute it is your duty said the captain to go aboard it is my instructions the lieutenant seemed on the verge of refusing the head of one of the mulatto's sailors appeared beside him i believe these men were killed by the ants said holroyd abruptly in english the captain burst into a rage he made no answer to holroyd i have commanded you to go aboard he screamed to his subordinate in portuguese if you do not go aboard forthwith it is mutiny rank mutiny mutiny and cowardice where is the courage that should animate us i will have you in irons i will have you shot like a dog he began a torrent of abuse and curses he danced to and fro he shook his fists he behaved as if beside himself with rage and the lieutenant white and still stood looking at him the crew appeared forward with amazed faces suddenly in a pause of this outbreak the lieutenant came to some heroic decision saluted drew himself together and clambered upon the deck of the cuberta ah said Guerriot, and his mouth shut like a trap holroyd saw the ants retreating before dacuna's boots the portuguese walked slowly to the fallen man stooped down hesitated clutched his coat and turned him over a black swarm of ants rushed out of the clothes and dacuna stepped back very quickly and trod two or three times on the deck holroyd put up the glasses he saw the scattered ants about the invader's feet and doing what he had never seen ants doing before they had nothing of the blind movements of the common ant they were looking at him as a rallying crowd of men might look at some gigantic monster that had dispersed it how did he die the captain shouted holroyd understood the portuguese to say the body was too much eaten to tell what is there forward asked Guerrier. the lieutenant walked a few paces and began his answer in portuguese he stopped abruptly and beat off something from his leg he made some peculiar steps as if he was trying to stamp on something invisible 
and went quickly towards the side. Then he controlled himself, turned about, walked deliberately forward to the hold, clambered up to the fore-decking from which the sweeps are worked, stooped for a time over the second man, groaned audibly, and made his way back and aft to the cabin, moving very rigidly. He turned and began a conversation with his captain, cold and respectful in tone on either side, contrasting vividly with the wrath and insult of a few moments before. Holroyd gathered only fragments of its purport. He reverted to the field-glass, and was surprised to find the ants had vanished from all the exposed surfaces of the deck. He turned towards the shadows beneath the decking, and it seemed to him they were full of watching eyes. The cuberta, it was agreed, was derelict, but too full of ants to put men aboard to sit and sleep. It must be towed. The lieutenant went forward to take in and adjust the cable, and the men in the boat stood up to be ready to help him. Holroyd's glasses searched the canoe. He became more and more impressed by the fact that a great, if minute and furtive, activity was going on. He perceived that a number of gigantic ants—they seemed nearly a couple of inches in length—carrying oddly shaped burdens for which he could imagine no use, were moving in rushes from one point of obscurity to another. They did not move in columns across the exposed places, but in open, spaced-out lines oddly suggestive of the rushes of modern infantry advancing under fire. A number were taking cover under the dead man's clothes, and a perfect swarm was gathering along the side over which Dakuna must presently go. He did not see them actually rush for the lieutenant as he returned, but he has no doubt they did make a concerted rush. Suddenly the lieutenant was shouting and cursing and beating at his legs. "'I'm stung!' he shouted, with a face of hate and accusation towards Gerio. Then he vanished over the side, dropped into his boat, and plunged at once into the water. Holroyd heard the splash. The three men in the boat pulled him out, and brought him aboard, and that night he died. Part Three. Holroyd and the captain came out of the cabin, in which the swollen and contorted body of the lieutenant lay, and stood together at the stern of the monitor, staring at the sinister vessel they trailed behind them. It was a close, dark night that had only phantom flickerings of sheet lightning to illuminate it. The cuberta, a vague black triangle, rocked about in the steamer's wake, her sails bobbing and flapping, and the black smoke from the funnels, spark-lit ever and again, streamed over her swaying masts. Gerio's mind was inclined to run on the unkind things the lieutenant had said in the heat of his last fever. "'He says I murdered him,' he protested. "'It is simply absurd. Somebody had to go aboard. Are we to run away from these confounded ants whenever they show up?' Holroyd said nothing. He was thinking of a disciplined rush of little black shapes across bare sunlit planking. "'It was his place to go,' harped Gerio. "'He died in the execution of his duty.' What has he to complain of? Murdered. But the poor fellow was—what is it—demented. He was not in his right mind. The poison swelled him. Ugh. They came to a long silence. We will sink that canoe, burn it. And then? The inquiry irritated Gerio. His shoulders went up, his hands flew out at right angles from his body. What is one to do? he said, his voice going up to an angry squeak. Anyhow, he broke out vindictively. Every ant in that cuberta, I will burn them alive. Holroyd was not moved to conversation. 
a distant ululation of howling monkeys filled the sultry night with foreboding sounds and as the gunboat drew near the black mysterious banks this was reinforced by a depressing clamour of frogs what is one to do the captain repeated after a vast interval and suddenly becoming active and savage and blasphemous decided to burn the santa rosa without further delay everyone aboard was pleased by that idea everyone helped with zest they pulled in the cable cut it and dropped the boat and fired her with tow and kerosene and soon the cuberta was crackling and flaring merrily amidst the immensities of the tropical night holroyd watched the mounting yellow flare against the blackness and the vivid flashes of sheet lightning that came and went above the forest summits throwing them into momentary silhouette and his stoker stood behind him watching also the stoker was stirred to the depths of his linguistics Thauba go pop pop he said <laughs> and laughed richly but holroyd was thinking that these little creatures on the decked canoe had also eyes and brains the whole thing impressed him as incredibly foolish and wrong but what was one to do this question came back enormously reinforced on the morrow when at last the gunboat reached Badama. this place with its leaf thatch covered houses and sheds its creeper invaded sugar mill its little jetty of timber and canes was very still in the morning heat and showed never a sign of living men whatever ants there were at that distance were too small to see all the people have gone said Gerio, but we will do one thing anyhow we will hoot and whistle so holroyd hooted and whistled then the captain fell into a doubting fit of the worst kind there is one thing we can do he said presently what's that said holroyd hoot and whistle again so they did the captain walked his deck and gesticulated to himself he seemed to have many things on his mind fragments of speeches came from his lips he appeared to be addressing some imaginary public tribunal either in spanish or portuguese holroyd's improving ear detected something about ammunition he came out of these preoccupations suddenly into english my dear holroyd he cried and broke off with but what can one do they took the boat and the field glasses and went close in to examine the place they made out a number of big ants whose still postures had a certain effect of watching them dotted about the edge of the rude embarkation jetty gerio tried ineffectual pistol shots at these holroyd thinks he distinguished curious earthworks running between the nearer houses that may have been the work of the insect conquerors of those human habitations the explorers pulled past the jetty and became aware of a human skeleton wearing a loincloth and very bright and clean and shining lying beyond they came to a pause regarding this i have all those lives to consider said Gerio suddenly holroyd turned and stared at the captain realizing slowly that he referred to the unappetizing mixture of races that constituted his crew to send a landing party it is impossible impossible they will be poisoned they will swell they will swell up and abuse me and die it is totally impossible if we land i must land alone alone in thick boots and with my life in my hand perhaps i should live or again i might not land i do not know i do not know holroyd thought he did but he said nothing the whole thing said Gario suddenly has been got up to make me ridiculous the whole thing 
they paddled about and regarded the clean white skeleton from various points of view and then they returned to the gunboat then Guerriot's indecisions became terrible steam was got up and in the afternoon the monitor went on up the river with an air of going to ask somebody something and by sunset came back again and anchored a thunderstorm gathered and broke furiously and then the night became beautifully cool and quiet and everyone slept on deck except Guerriot, who tossed and muttered in the dawn he awakened holroyd lord said holroyd what now i have decided said the captain what to land said holroyd sitting up brightly no said the captain and was for a time very reserved i have decided he repeated and holroyd manifested symptoms of impatience well yes said the captain i shall fire de big gun and he did heaven knows what the ants thought of it but he did he fired it twice with great sternness and ceremony all the crew had wadding in their ears and there was an effect of going into action about the whole affair and first they hit and wrecked the old sugar-mill and then they smashed the abandoned store behind the jetty and then Guerriot experienced the inevitable reaction it is no good he said to holroyd no good at all no sort of bally good we must go back for instructions there will be de devil of a row about this ammunition oh de devil of a row you don't know holroyd he stood regarding the world in infinite perplexity for a space but what else was there to do he cried in the afternoon the monitor started downstream again and in the evening a landing party took the body of the lieutenant and buried it on the bank upon which the new ants have so far not appeared part four i heard this story in a fragmentary state from holroyd not three weeks ago these new ants have got into his brain and he has come back to england with the idea as he says of exciting people about them before it is too late he says they threaten british guiana which cannot be much over a trifle of a thousand miles from their present sphere of activity and that the colonial office ought to get to work upon them at once he declaims with great passion these are intelligent ants just think what that means there can be no doubt they are a serious pest and that the brazilian government is well advised in offering a prize of five hundred pounds for some effectual method of extirpation it is certain too that since they first appeared in the hills beyond bedama about three years ago they have achieved extraordinary conquests the whole of the south bank of the Batamo river for nearly sixty miles they have in their effectual occupation they have driven men out completely occupied plantations and settlements and boarded and captured at least one ship it is even said they have in some inexplicable way bridged the very considerable capuarana arm and pushed many miles towards the amazon itself there can be little doubt that they are far more reasonable and with a far better social organization than any previously known ant species instead of being in dispersed societies they are organized into what is in effect a single nation but their peculiar and immediate formidableness lies not so much in this as in the intelligent use they make of poison against their larger enemies it would seem this poison of theirs is closely akin to snake poison 
and it is highly probable they actually manufacture it, and that the larger individuals among them carry the needle-like crystals of it in their attacks upon men. Of course, it is extremely difficult to get any detailed information about these new competitors for the sovereignty of the globe. No eyewitnesses of their activity, except for such glimpses as Holroyd's, have survived the encounter. The most extraordinary legends of their prowess and capacity are in circulation in the region of the upper Amazon, and grow daily as the steady advance of the invader stimulates men's imaginations through their fears. These strange little creatures are credited not only with the use of implements and a knowledge of fire and metals, and with organized feats of engineering that stagger our northern minds, unused as we are to such feats as that of the Saubas of Rio de Janeiro, who in 1841 drove a tunnel under the Parahiba, where it is as wide as the Thames at London Bridge, but with an organized and detailed method of record and communication analogous to our books. So far their action has been a steady progressive settlement, involving the flight or slaughter of every human being in the new areas they invade. They are increasing rapidly in numbers, and Holroyd at least is firmly convinced that they will finally dispossess man over the whole of tropical South America. And why should they stop at tropical South America? Well, there they are, anyhow. By 1911, or thereabouts, if they go on as they are going, they ought to strike the Capuarana Extension Railway and force themselves upon the attention of the European capitalist. By 1920 they will be halfway down the Amazon. I fix 1950 or 60 at the latest for the discovery of Europe. End of chapter 30